Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got an awesome Thursday morning show for you today, including the trucker protests in Ottawa and in Alberta. The truckers digging in here now. They say they aren't going anywhere until all vaccine mandates are dropped. We've got some great guests coming up on this, including an Ottawa City Councillor who's been speaking out on this and a local resident who has started a petition to evict the truckers from the streets of Ottawa. Easier said than done. Even the police chief there saying he's having trouble. He doesn't think the cops will be able to handle the situation. we got a live update from the trucker blockades in Alberta as well that one continues to develop that is all coming up here in our jam-packed first hour of the show but first we start with living with covid is that where all this is eventually heading experts saying it's now practically impossible to fully eliminate covid so do we start to simply live with it that's what scott moe said yesterday the saskatchewan premier posting a video on social media yesterday saying the province will soon drop its covid restrictions have a listen scott moe what i'm about to say will sound radical to some and some quite frankly aren't going to like it but eradicating covid is not realistic and covid zero is not achievable but normalizing covid or living with covid most certainly is Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Dr. Monica Gandhi, infectious disease specialist at the University of California in San Francisco. And I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Dr. Gandhi, thank you very much for coming on today. Thank you. Okay, Dr. Gandhi, when you hear uh, one of our politicians here in Canada make that statement that we just played, that it's basically impossible to eliminate COVID. I remember people talking about COVID zero. Let's completely eradicate it. Do you agree with that assessment that it's here to stay? Yes, it's absolutely here to stay. And I just think it's really important from an infectious disease standpoint. And I've been a longstanding infectious disease doctor and epidemiologist that it's not anyone's fault. It's not because we didn't shut down hard enough or mask hard enough or keep our kids out of school. It really had to do with the properties of the virus that it's four properties. It has an animal reservoir you can spread before you're symptomatic. Our vaccines increasingly are non-sterilizing and it looks like a bunch of other respiratory pathogens. So we can't eliminate it. There are four reasons. However, we can control it and that's what your politician is reflecting. Yeah, I think so. And it seems like there's other countries around the world that seem to be heading in, in this direction too, living with COVID, I guess, managing it like the flu. Is that possible? Yes. So that's exactly the model, like you said, that, for example, the European equivalent to the CDC on January 27th put out a document about the Omicron surge. And in there, they said, this is our exit strategy. We have to realize that there's a balance of closing down society and NPIs with the fact that we have great vaccines and we've had wonderful uptake in our yeah. in our continent and we can live with it like we live with the flu. That goes back to kind of normal life almost for the public. And then for us in the medical community, we vaccinate and we treat. 
Okay, let me play another clip here for you from Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe in this video that got a lot of attention yesterday, Doctor, and get your thoughts on it. So here is Scott Moe again talking about COVID and the path forward. Have a listen. For example, I heard this recently. I did everything right, and I still got COVID. Well, COVID is a virus. It's a highly transmissible virus that many people are contracting. In its current form, both vaccinated and unvaccinated people are getting it and they're getting it at virtually the same rate that's uh, something that jumped out at me yesterday when he said people who are vaccinated and unvaccinated are are getting COVID at the same rate is that true well that is true in terms of my uh, in terms of infection but not the degree of infection there's just yeah. no doubt the way immunology works is that those who are unvaccinated get more severe disease from COVID simply yeah. no doubt right and and is it you're less likely to catch it in the first place if you're vaccinated correct yes actually we know that it depends where you are in your cycle when you last got your vaccine it depends on how plump your antibodies in your nose are if it's been a long time since you've gotten your vaccine they could be not be as plump and you could get it at equal rate if you just got your vaccine or got a booster you're less likely to get it it really depends it's it's more complicated than that Speaking to Dr. Monica Gandhi from the University of California, infectious disease specialist. So if we talk about living with COVID and managing it going forward, you mentioned the, the, the efficacy of the vaccines. And the vaccines, I think, have saved so many lives all around the world. And we continue to have governments stressing, get the vaccine. This is what we must do. And I certainly encourage people to do that as well. What about other ways of managing it? Like we've got therapeutics right now. We've just had one approved in Canada, uh, an, an oral an oral medication you can take by prescription if you catch COVID and it will result in less serious disease, right? Yes. So that um, is called Paxlovid. It's an oral right, therapeutic. Right. It's going to be key to living with COVID because monoclonal antibodies are amazing, but they're logistically hard to give and they're not as easy as a five-day course of just an antiviral you can take. It prevents hospitalizations and deaths by 89% in those who are unvaccinated with high-risk factors. And in the future, if you are immunosuppressed and you are more at risk for severe breakthroughs, we're going to hand you Paxlovid and make sure you don't get sick. So having that oral treatment is key to the endemicity phase. Okay, what about the severity of the illness right now? This is something else we hear frequently, that the Omicron variant of the virus is making people less less severity in the illness that they get. Is that another factor as we move forward here? If people are getting less sick than they had in the past, that that's another, another step toward living with this thing? Yes, if Omicron just happened to have been more severe, I doubt we'd be discussing the phrase endemicity as much as we are now. It's less yeah. severe. It, it basically causes, it doesn't affect lung cells as well in multiple models. It gave a huge number of the world immunity. 50% of people have been exposed to Omicron in one way or the other. And that's what happened in the influenza pandemic of 1918. A milder variant with lots of immunity in the world already drove this into what's called endemicity and control. So that's why we're talking about Omicron the way we are. And and most everyone is talking this way. Right. And speaking of endemicity, as you mentioned there, like moving from a pandemic to an endemic, can you talk a little bit about what that what that means? What that means is we we've already established we can't eradicate it. No one's fault. Virus's fault. Okay. So then you yeah. say, okay, how, how, what does endemicity mean? It means controlling the virus. It means reducing the burden of disease, specifically in hospitals. You have a very high vaccination rate in Canada, and through the Omicron surge, you did a great job 
basically because of all your high vaccination controlling the disease. Some hospitalizations were with COVID, some were for, so we have to distinguish that clearly. Okay, so then going forward, if you have a low burden of disease in the hospital, endemicity means you keep on vaccinating, encouraging people to vaccinate, you treat people at high risk, and you don't tell the public to, to change their lives anymore like they did, like we do for flu. They don't mask mandates, there aren't vaccine passports, there aren't uh, asymptomatic testing. You tell, let the public go back to normal like they are in Denmark, for example. Right. But the medical community is on it, and they're always working on COVID. Okay, so if we get into this endemic phase of the of the virus and governments start to relax and drop restrictions, could that mean, like, for example, we have a, a passport card, a vaccine card system here in British Columbia, you got to show a vaccine card to go into a restaurant, for example. Could governments begin to reasonably and responsibly drop those restrictions, drop the vaccine passports. And what about vaccine mandates requiring people to be vaccined as a condition of their employment? Is that something you think could be reasonably and responsibly dropped? Eventually, in the setting of endemicity, it would be reasonable and responsible to drop both vaccine passports and vaccine mandates. UK, Finland, France, um, Switzerland and Denmark are all going towards that. UK did this two weeks ago. Um, it looks like normal life, actually, for the population, except we probably pay more attention to ventilation. And fundamentally, yeah. we tell people that if they don't want any exposure, here are the best masks to wear. And I'm going to tell you about the KN95s and the great masks that you can wear to just prevent any exposure when we go to mask optional. Dr. Gandhi, thank you very much for coming on with your thoughts today. Thank you. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the trucker protests now. Truckers digging in here. Later this hour, we'll go to Ottawa for the latest on the trucker protests there. Truckers continuing to sound the horns of their trucks. Day and night traffic gridlock in the city of Ottawa. Truckers say they're not going anywhere until the vaccine mandates are dropped. Meanwhile, next door in Alberta, we saw that trucker blockade of a U.S. border crossing. couple of lanes of traffic opened up there now got a great guest on this standing by first have a listen to this report from global news anybody who feels sympathetic uh, to those engaged in this blockade please uh, stay away from the area Uh, please do not uh, further intensify an an already difficult situation Uh, the police have a job to do Beyond the RCMP checkpoint, several dozen protest vehicles gathered Wednesday. Their drivers telling Global News they've come in a show of support for those still here. Our intention remains to, to restore movement of goods and vehicles on the road, but not at the risk of public safety. Okay, you heard the voice there of an RCMP spokesperson there about the situation. Also, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney was the first voice you heard in that report. Let's get an update now with my guest, Kieran Levitt, Edmonton-based reporter for the Toronto Star. He's been on this story. Kieran, thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike, thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this. What is the latest right now? Are those truckers still on the scene there? And I heard there's another blockade up the highway now. Is that right? There is a police checkpoint uh, a little bit north of Coots, and they had hoped to start escorting some vehicles southbound uh, towards Coots and the border. Uh, that was the, that was as of last night, and my understanding is that they were able to escort a few vehicles down, um, but the the roadway was quickly sort of blocked off once again, and they weren't able to get that many through. 
Uh, so my understanding right now is that the situation is still um, tenuous at best, and they're advising people not to attend the area. Right. Yesterday we heard it sounded like there was some progress being made with a couple of lanes of traffic opened up at the border. Is that still the situation? Um, as far as I can tell, um, there was some wiggle room that opened up down there and um it's hard to tell exactly how open it still is the police are basically just maintaining the line that people in you know unless it's absolutely necessary should not travel down highway four towards coots um there are still lots of vehicles protest vehicles on the road um the situation obviously is quite fluid um but yes there was a bit of negotiation that happened and um, reports late yesterday were that um, a a northbound and southbound lane had opened up. Uh, Now that doesn't mean that people are able to freely move across the border with the United States or anything like that. But certainly if you're in Coots or if you're in, you know, around the area, um, it means maybe a little bit more movement for you. What has it been like for the people living in that community there, Coots? I mean, this is a small town, small village of like 250 people, and they almost seem like, are they just trapped there, or are they able to move around? Uh, people people are fairly closed in <laughs> to the village of Coots. Um, it's, uh, it, you know, people from the village have told me things like it's overwhelming, uh, they're not used to this, you know, a lot of older residents live there, it's a sleepy, quiet border town. Um, there's one woman yesterday who told us, you know, I don't have a political agenda. My political agenda is making pots in a basement in Coots. Um, (laughs) so, you know, like this is the type of, this is the type of place. And so, um, you know, there's been some concerning reports as well. I had a conversation with the mayor of Coots yesterday. Uh, and he told me that there were some men who were standing outside of his house, taking pictures of it. You know, he's been a vocal critic of the blockade over the past week. Um, because it's obviously causing issues with emergency vehicles, people being able to move freely, you know, free travel of goods and services across the border. Um, so he's no fan. And uh, so that, that was an intimidating experience for him. But, um, you know, he's in good spirits. And he told me he's got the RCMP on speed dial, so he feels safe. And so that's about as much as I can tell you about people in Coots. We just got about 30 seconds left here, Karen. Where does this go today? And we heard uh, Premier Jason Kenney encouraging people to stay away from the area. Are there still negotiations on? Is there, st- is there any indication police are going to move in? What do you think is happening today? Honestly, I wish I could tell you more. It, like I said, it's a completely fluid situation. Negotiations yeah. are still happening between police and protesters. They haven't stopped since day one. Um, we'll really just have to wait and see if political tensions are high. Um, you know, I know the government is watching this very closely, so anything could happen today. But, you know, okay. if, if I was to make a prediction, uh, it, it's it's hard to see this going away quickly. Karen, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Hi, welcome back to the show. Continuing to talk about the trucker protests. You just heard on my conversation there with a reporter on the ground in Alberta about the situation there at the Alberta-U.S. border with protesting truckers digging in there. Let's go to Ottawa now. Ottawa, uh, the site, uh, I think it's day six now of the trucker protests there. Ottawa bracing for another weekend of this. The possibility of more truckers potentially rolling into town. We saw some videos emerge yesterday of supporters wheeling in jerry cans of fuel 
uh, to the truckers who have locked down part of the downtown of Ottawa, essentially occupying the area around Parliament Hill. They say they aren't going anywhere until vaccine mandates are dropped. The Ottawa police estimate uh, this is a hardcore group of protesters here of approximately 250 people making life not so nice for the residents around there. Let's check in with one of them now. Jeremy Owen, he's an Ottawa house painter who started an online petition to evict the truckers. Jeremy, thanks for coming on today. Oh, hello, Mike. Thanks for having me. Hello, yeah, Vancouver. You bet. Thanks for doing it. Checking out your your online petition right now, Jeremy, on change.org. You have t- just over 27,000 signatures here in your petition. What are you hoping to achieve there? Um, honestly, what I would like to achieve would be the full-scale eviction of this occupation from Ottawa. Whether or not an online petition can do that by itself is questionable, but that is the end goal. Can you tell me what it's been like in, in Ottawa with this going on? Uh, absolutely. So I technically live outside of the blast zone. Um, mm-hmm. I assume you've seen all the online stuff with the constant like horn honking and that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so that's very real. So I only get, occasionally when the wind changes or whatever, I'll get a bit of a walk to it. But I have gone down to what officials are now calling the red zone or the footprint. These are ominous terms, by the way. Um, I've gone down there a couple of times, once after the desecration of the Terry Fox statue, and then once just last night to take the temperature. Um, and it's it's the eeriest thing ever. It's, you can't imagine what a game changer these semi-trucks are. This is like, this is revolutionary urban warfare in the 21st century, apparently. We have mobile barricades. There's 100 trucks on Wellington Street, and the cops apparently can't move them. Right, and and I I like your description there, the blast zone. Is that like the blast of the horns going all the time? Yes, exactly. Plus, and it's I don't want to understate the horns thing, but also these are diesel-burning trucks that are running like 24-7. Like, it stinks down there. It's awful. Right. How often do the horns go off? Um, so when I was down there last night, it's pretty intermittent. But when I was there on Sunday, it was like a constant kind of noise. So I'm expecting that uh, once we come up to the weekend and the new trucks that they're expecting come in and the crowd swell, because like 30% of Canadians are insane now, right? So come the weekend, all of like those people in Ottawa are going to converge on the hill as well, and it's going to get... It's going to get very loud. Are they, are they blowing the horns at night, like when people are trying to sleep? Um, I haven't heard about that in the past couple of days, but they definitely were for the, for the first, say, four days. There's yeah. reports of residents who have been, like, just terrorized, just terrorized. Speaking of Jeremy Owen, he's an Ottawa resident. He started a petition to try and evict the protesting truckers. Let me play a clip here for you, Jeremy. Get your thoughts of the Ottawa police chief here, Peter is it slowly? Is that how you pronounce this guy's name? I, I believe, uh, very ironically, his name is Slowly. Slowly, yeah, kind of moving kind of slowly here, according <laughs> to some people. So let me play a clip here for him. He, he appeared in front of Ottawa City Council yesterday, and he's a the cops can't get rid of these truckers. They need help. Here's what he had to say. Increasingly, as we see demonstrations, not just here, but elsewhere in the country, where there are efforts um, by strictly a policing action. Um, We are 
not as confident as we have been that police alone will resolve this situation substantially, never mind in totality. Okay, so he's basically saying that the police, what, they, they can't move these they can't move these protesters out of there, they can't arrest them, they can't tow their trucks. Like how do people uh, how do people react to this? Like are people getting fed up? Let me if I if I may, let me tell you about an incident that I saw last night as sure. I was walking by um, a police sort of a like station. There was two cars there and a and a, a trio of cops standing there. And a cyclist drove by them and yelled at them, why don't you guys do your jobs? And the police responded by mocking and like just engaging with him. They, uh, one guy says, I don't come to McDonald's and tell you how to flip burgers. Don't tell me how to do my job. Mm. So there's definitely like a lot of antagonism on both sides. I think people are frustrated with the cops. And as you saw from the press conference, they don't have any solutions. No, and it was interesting to hear the police chief yesterday at one point suggest that you know we can't we can't solve this ourselves. We need other people to help. We need. It sounds like they need politic political negotiation. He suggested, and then at one point, he even suggest appeared to suggest that the Canadian military should be deployed. Are people talking about that in Ottawa? A hundred percent. Like because like the thing is, if they can't do the job then who can do the job? Right now, the, the clenched fist of a QAnon Mardi Gras is gripped around the nation's capital. Like, that's insane, right? You can't have that. There are embassies from around the world here who are watching this. Are there, are there anyone, like, people in Ottawa, this is a tough issue in our country, to say the least. There seems to be, there is considerable support for people who say, look, Maybe we just this the time has come to just start living with this virus and we can drop the restrictions or relax them. A lot of people are sort of coming around, I think, to that point of view. I wonder if people in Ottawa, even if they might have had some sympathy with that idea, just look at the tactics of of the truckers occupying the city and really maybe that support dwindling. Like, how would you characterize that? Well, no, exactly, because obviously, like, so it's been two years of COVID now, and people are tired and they're fed up. So, yeah, yeah, let's have a conversation. But it's important to remember that this started out as an anti-vaccine mandate. Like, the whole thing is just so nebulous and confused. And that's why some sort of, like, negotiation with leadership of the occupiers is pointless, because there is no hard leadership, right? They've got a Nazi flag being flown on Parliament Hill. Now, 99.9% of the people are going to disavow that because that's what it's like. It's the Hydra with a thousand heads. But nevertheless, you see the images. That flag flew on Parliament Hill. It can never be undone. What about the the, the traffic enforcement around the city? Because the <laughs> Ottawa police uh, said yesterday that uh, police have laid some tickets on the truckers. They've chart. They've had eight tickets written for unnecessary noise of honking, honking horns. There's been some other tickets issued to the truckers. But I know that other residents of the of the city who have nothing to do with the protest are seeing that they're getting ticketed for parking on a side street. What do you, what do, what are people saying about that? Um, I, I don't know what people specifically are saying about that, but I did see that mentioned at the press conference yesterday where the bylaw officer came up and said, yes, well, there is the red zone and we can't really do much about that. But as far as the rest of Ottawa goes, it's, it's regular rules, which like I 
yes, but also you can see how, as a resident, getting ticketed while having to endure all this is yeah. infuriating. Jeremy, we're watching it closely, to say the least. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks so much for your time, Mike. Okay, thank you. Jeremy... Oh, wait, sorry, can I just ask the people of Vancouver who are watching this, if you can reach out to your officials and get some movement here. We could really, really use the help of the West. All right, welcome back. Let's keep talking about the protesting truckers occupying the nation's capital at this hour. Truckers continuing to occupy the streets of downtown Ottawa. Could more protesters be on the way? Let's go to Ottawa now. Speak to Ottawa City Councillor Catherine McKenney. Councillor, thank you for coming on today. Hi, good afternoon. Thanks a lot for doing this. Councillor, can you tell me your thoughts on the situation in Ottawa right now? What are your thoughts and concerns right now? Mm-hmm. Things are pretty dire here. Uh, it's chaotic. I think it's really important for people to um, remember or recognize that there are two Ottawas, really. There is Ottawa that is Parliament Hill and Wellington Street in front of it. And then there is Ottawa, which is the rest of the city and and the the residential neighborhoods that, uh, you know, directly abut Parliament Hill. And while we are, you know, seeing ongoing occupation and convoy occupation on the hill, what is happening is that there is uh, a stream of what you would can't call anything but thuggery, really, uh, happening and 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 uh, streaming into our residential neighborhoods. Our, our residential neighborhoods, quite frankly, have been abandoned. Um, during a, a national crisis and occupation of our city. What, what kind of thuggery is going on? Because I, I noted that the Ottawa police had said they hadn't, there, had been any, there had not been any violence mm-hmm. or arrests for mm-hmm. violence. Mm-hmm. Um, we have had, just this morning, we had uh, a, a walk thrown through a window of um, <clears throat> a coffee shop, a popular coffee shop that had a rainbow flag uh, in it. Uh, wow. We've had seniors who have been harassed and yelled at and not um, demanded that their masks be taken off uh, on busy uh, intersections in our downtown. We have trucks driving through our neighborhood, keeping their horn on uh, almost 24 hours a day. They don't stop. They go up on the sidewalks. They harass people. Uh, We had a young couple who, again, hanging a rainbow flag, had things thrown at their window, uh, defecated on their front um, front door. They had to be escorted to a friend's place. I could go on and on. Yesterday, a yeah. uh, funeral had to be postponed because um, the basilica is downtown where it was to, had to be held, and they couldn't get the body to, to the church. It is ongoing. Uh, what police are focusing on, yeah. It's what's happening on the hill, and there are no, there's just nothing, no enforcement happening in our residential neighborhoods. It is, it is absolutely chaotic. Speaking of Ottawa City Councillor Catherine McKenney, Councillor, what do you think of, speaking of the police response, what do you think of the police response to date? Well, I believe firmly that it should have been the federal government's responsibility to uh, protect the perimeter around Parliament Hill, and it should have been our local police's responsibility to protect residential neighborhoods. What's happened is the local police are on the hill, uh, as we saw last weekend, uh, you know, 
hundreds of large trucks came into our city. Uh, you know, that there were riots. I mean, I know that the police continue to say they don't want riots to break out, and I agree with that. Uh, but we have had what you would call riots. We have fires happening in the downtown, on corners, uh, bonfires, that sort of thing. So, you know, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a police expert. I'm not a riot control expert. That is not my expertise. So I'm not no. going to second guess what, how it's been handled on the Hill today. But what's happening in the city in our residential neighborhoods is uh, unconscionable, really. Let me play a clip here for you, Counselor, from Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slowly and his appearance. I I believe this was in front of City Council yesterday. And this is an interesting exchange that got a lot of attention here about whether the police can manage this situation or end this protest and what kind of help do they need? What else needs to be done? Here's the Ottawa Police Chief, and then I'll get your thoughts. There is likely no policing solution to this, but in combination with other efforts, there may be other opportunities to substantially reduce, if not um, end this demonstration. I know, but I don't know what that means, right? When you say other than police, do you mean, do you need politics? Do you need military? I'm very, I'm not, I don't understand the answer. I understand it's not only police, but then what are those other options that are not police options that we might need? I think you just listed most of them right there. Okay, so that was the Ottawa Police Chief in discussion. Was that your voice there, Councillor? I wasn't sure who that no, was. That was a, okay. No, that was a, a local journalist. Oh, I see. Okay, so that's a local reporter asking the police yeah. chief about that. And you heard the police chief respond there that, you know, mm-hmm. the, the reporter says, well, what about the option of military? And he didn't seem to rule that out. What, what is your understanding of that possibility, which just seems seems just wild that military could be deployed and the Canadian military have already said there's no plans to do that. But what do you, what are your, what's your understanding of that? Well, you know, I, I go back to what was asked and, and how it was responded to, uh, you know, is it politics or is it, you know, is it military? Is it force? And there is a tremendous amount of daylight in between those two options. Yeah. So, you know, for for people here in this city, and we are enduring uh, what really is terrifying situation, we cannot safely walk down our streets right now. Um, what what we didn't hear yesterday was, was a plan. And what we don't have, what we don't have, again, is the federal government stepping in and, and helping. And I just actually just formally requested, sent a letter to the Prime Minister and formally requested that the RCMP be deployed in the city so that they take over uh, on the Hill so that Ottawa police can be in our residential neighbourhoods. There's just, I, I'm, I'm shocked that that wasn't done by police, by formally by the city, but I did it as an elected official for this area. Councillor, we just have 30 seconds left. What would you like to see the federal government do besides deploying the RCMP there? You know, I, I want them to come in and take responsibility. I want them to come in and, and, and take over the operations on the Hill. Uh, it is shocking to me that in this country, uh, our federal government cannot protect one residential neighborhood in this entire country right now today. It's 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 okay. it's outrageous and and people are frightened. Okay, we're watching it closely. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you very much. I- hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Appreciate it. Let's talk about camping in British Columbia, always super popular. Our family's uh, into camping. We haven't gone for the last couple of summers, though. We got I got my tent in the garage and my camping stuff. It's ready to go. I have had some trouble, though, in the past reserving a campsite at the park that we want. My problem is I'm always thinking about it too late, last minute. Oh, let's go camping on this popular summer weekend, a long weekend in July or something like that. Well, forget about it. The park that you want to go to, oh, they're all the camps are, uh, campsites are booked up a long time ago. You must reserve online and you have to know what you're doing. You have to be like a digital ninja on there in order to make sure you get the site you want, the dates that you want, and you've got to be ready when that campsite is open for reservation, that you are in front of your computer with your credit card in your claw, ready to rock, ready to go, so you can snap up that campsite as soon as it becomes available. So I'm getting to know a little bit more about the ins and outs of doing it, but it can be difficult. Now, do you remember a few years ago, lots of people were having trouble. They were having problems booking a campsite in British Columbia. The government overhauled the online booking system. They were going to clear up all these problems, fix all these bugs. It was going to be a much better system. That was a few years ago. Well, I mean, we still have problems booking a campsite in BC Provincial Parks. So now here we go. We're going to fix it Again, improvements are now coming to the BC Parks Digital Service to book a campsite online. Have a listen to BC Environment Minister George Heyman. We heard lots of frustration, lots of complaints, lots of things that we could do better uh, over the past couple of years. So over the past few months, we've uh, we've engaged with hundreds of campers and park operators from all over the province, surveys, interviews, and focus groups. And we ended up finding, first of all, a new proven provider for our our site. And then we uh, designed a brand new site that we think will be easier to use, much more user-friendly. Okay, the it's a do-over. We're going to fix this again. We're going to make it a much more user-friendly system for reserving a campsite in British Columbia. This got so bad at one point a few years ago that people were actually scalping campsites outside of provincial parks. There were reports about that. What do we need to do to fix this system and make it work better? Let's check in with an expert now. Sam Waddington, he's the founder of Mount Waddington's Outdoors in Chilliwack, and he's an expert on this system. And I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Sam, thanks for coming on. Of course, no worries. Good to talk to you, Mike. Hey, Sam, right now, when you're booking a a campsite online in British Columbia, how would you characterize that system and the way it's functioning right now? Are there still there's still problems with it? Yeah, there's still problems with it, and uh, it seems to be a bit of a revolving door. The province works hard to fix it. I, I, I do I do give them credit for that, but demand just continues to grow year over year, and um, and it seems to just be behind the uh, the demand that that our province has for getting outside and, and camping in our province. That's for sure. Okay, what are the biggest problems in in your mind? When you talk to people who are are trying to book their favorite campsite, 
what are the main complaints that you hear? Um, I think I think the challenge is that because the booking system is so aggressive and, and, and the campsites are so limited, when those sites become available, it's a mad dash. And it's not, you know, a relaxing experience sitting there with your coffee, trying to plan what your beautiful summer trip's going to be like. It's, you know, you're buying, you know, tickets to the Rolling Stones on Ticketmaster, it feels <laughs> yeah. like, you know, it's just chaos. So I think they're, they're trying to make it a little bit more search-friendly, a little more user-friendly, um, but, but really just try to, try to take it from the user's perspective, which is, I don't exactly know where I want to camp. I want to look at some options. I want to see what's available and not just have 30 seconds to choose, otherwise I'm not camping till next summer kind of vibe, which is the current status quo, right? Right. How far in advance are you required to book a campsite right now? Like, when do, when do the campsites open for reservation on the system now? Yeah, so it's a it's a bit of a revolving door. So so they book uh, three months out at any given time. So if you want to get a site in, you know, July first, you need to work yourself backwards in a calendar by three months to figure out which right. day your campsite's going to become available. So the idea behind that was it was dealing with the problem that they were having about four years ago, which was all the sites became available all at the same time. And the site literally was crashing because of so much demand and they couldn't handle the web traffic. So this way, it's a little bit of a, um, a revolving process. And, and I'm hoping we're going to see, it's been beta tested, but we're going to see if this new system irons out the kinks because uh, some of those kinks were very real. People were gaming the system and booking two weeks out from a date that, that it became available because uh, you could book two weeks beyond the day that you actually wanted and then canceling, but then that, that led to... Uh, leftover sites in, in parks, these types of challenges for sure. So I'm optimistic. I really do hope that uh, that this fix is real for this summer um, yeah. because with COVID kind of continuing to march along, I think it's going to be yet another record season for BC Parks. And uh, with all the damage happening, there's actually less sites than ever before too um, because some yeah. of those sites won't be up and operational for this summer. Oh, oh, you mean from the floods and landslides? Absolutely, wow. yeah. Across wow. the lower mainland, southwest BC, where the park system is already the busiest, we're going to be running into some serious challenges with, with entire rec sites still closed because of either road access or, you know, I think about places like Maple Bay in Cultus Lake, um, there's three feet of gravel covering what used to be some of these sites from, from creek spillovers and these types of things. And those are the most popular sites in the system. So, Okay, speaking to Sam Waddington in Chilliwack, he's an expert on outdoor, the outdoors in British Columbia and camping in B.C. We're talking about the redesign of the B.C. Camping Reservation website again. So we're, we're going to try and fix this thing again. So we're being promised by the government here, Sam, that this new system is going to roll out in March, which is not not that far from now. If you were running the show, like if you could have your wish list here, how would you fix it? Like what do you think is should be the top priority to make this a, a better experience for people? Yeah, it's uh, there, there's a couple of fundamental pieces I think that we need to look at. BC um, has found itself uh, in the category of some of the world's most in-demand campsites um, by the numbers. And so we need to look to systems that are better than we are at doing this. And I keep referring back to, um, you know, some of the systems in New Zealand um, and elsewhere where, 
you know, for the really popular sites, there's lottery systems. Um, oh. You know, it's a it's a way more bookable system. There's uh, locals get you know some preferential bookings for certain areas. So there's there's different formulas for different regions depending on what they're trying to accomplish. But um, it's trying to make it equitable for folks who you know can't afford it. So you can't just raise prices on campsites because we want to make them affordable. But that's the only other way to curb demand is to make your system more streamlined. So I think. I think allowing locals to have access to their local parks is key, but that's a a, a, a portion of what you make available. The other portion, there, yeah, go ahead. Is there a shortage of campsites in British Columbia right now, would you say, and demands on the park system? Because during COVID, and here we're going into year three of this thing now, I mean, a lot of people are we're still not traveling. A lot of people are looking, I'm doing a staycation instead. I mean, we live in the most beautiful place in the world anyway, so I might as well just stay home. Let's go camping. Like, is that has that led to unprecedented demand in the system here recently? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, you know, and it's, it's actually neat to see in one way, which is British Columbians are going to have to grapple with the fact that a few years ago, we were scapegoating and saying it's international visitors and it's these other folks and they're clogging up our booking system. And for sure, that was a factor. But we we have a unprecedented capacity to clog up our own system just fine. Yeah, so what yeah. we're realizing is even British Columbians playing in their own backyard are overstripping our system with very few Albertans coming over the border and other Canadians and especially no international travelers. We're able to make our system untenable all on our own. So yeah. um you know, we need to build capacity. We need to build more sites. And I know that BC Parks is picking away at that. But the one thing that I need to articulate is we have to backstop those new sites with proper operations because we're building new sites. And in some places, and I'm the first advocate of that, but if you don't staff it, then that's going to lead right. to a whole other issues. So um, that's that's definitely front and foremost on, on my mind. And if I could speak directly to Minister Heyman, that's what I would tell him, is we need to we need to increase staffing in BC parks so that the experience is awesome. We don't just have more sites that are managed by the same number of parks rangers. All right, welcome back to the show. Talking about BC's provincial campsite reservation system, the government says they are going to fix it and make it better. Again, my guest is Sam Waddington, founder and owner Mount Waddington's Outdoors in Chilliwack. Lots of calls. Emily in Surrey. Hi, Emily. Go ahead. Hi there. Um, I wanted to say that we actually never camp in BC locally because we can't get a site. We often go to the U.S. because it's a lot easier in Washington State to get a spot. But then mm. I'm also a web designer, and I think what's so frustrating about this is that the BC government continues to use taxpayer dollars to rebuild these websites when these systems have been in place for so long, and especially over the last two years with COVID, they've had to continue to have proper scheduling systems. It just seems ridiculous that this continues to be an issue with the BC government not doing their research, not hiring the right people, and then paying an astronomical amount to redo an entire website. Okay, Emily, thank you for an awesome call. Let me ask you, uh, when you when you go camping in Washington State, why is the system work better there? Like, what is better about it? There's a lot less uh, government-run campgrounds. So you have, like, the entire KOA system. You have um, a lot of different options for camping. And, again, I think what your uh, guest had said, there is a lot more spots. So you're not having to be awake at January 1st at 1 in the morning to try to book your campsite. Okay, thank you for the call. Sam, what do you think of that? Awesome, yeah. And Emily makes some, some great points. Um, 
I'm sure from a web designer's perspective, that's got to be a frustrating process to look at a product you think you could, you know, create in a different way. But I think she brings in a good point, which is this, this, the advent of other options, um, you know, and, uh, and while I'm a firm advocate that we need more private sector campgrounds, absolutely. I think we also need to keep the pressure on the other government agencies in BC. Um, remember that about, you know, two thirds of the campsites available in British Columbia by government are actually forestry rec sites, not provincial park campsites. And um, and while demand has continued to grow in BC parks, uh, I don't think forestry's pulled their their share of the load and and you know helped to advertise themselves as a as a viable second option because some of these parks are just as beautiful next to awesome rivers or lakes, you know, beautiful campgrounds. Um, so I think the province needs to take a more holistic look and look at all these sites as one asset and market them and make them available all on one user interface. Those, not those, uh, those forestry service campsites, do you have to reserve those? or? Yes, yeah, so the same idea. Okay. Some of them are reservable. Some are okay. first come, first serve, similar to BC Parks, but I would say there's more of them that are just first come, first serve. Yeah. Um, but there are still bookable ones. And, and again, like, you know, in the south coast of BC, where BC Parks' system is in most demand, um, there are incredible forestry rec sites um, that, that a lot of folks just don't know about, and, yeah. um, and they should be looked at as viable options. Let's go to Steve on the line in Kelowna. Hi, Steve. Hi there. Talk about a frustrating system. So we've, we've ended up buying a, a trailer to go camping and, you know, staycation in the Okanagan, right? Sure. And <clears throat> could never get a site. Now, wow. I don't know about you and your family, but my wife's not willing to drive two hours and hope that there's a first-come, first-serve spot available. So we want to book. But yeah. every year I get on there. I'm up in the middle of the night so I can get on there and book. And it's, it, well, you know, it crashed. And then the, after that, nothing was available. Uh, huh. I would pick a site and I would go through the process of trying to book it. And when I finally got to the end of the process, uh, it was not available. Like if they're going to redo the site, redo the site where when somebody's selected a particular site to book, that it should be held until they complete their transaction or give them that time out of three minutes or whatever it is to complete it. Doesn't it do um, that? Doesn't it do that now? I, I don't think so. Cause, Sam, um, let me, let me ask Sam, Sam, go ahead. Yeah. So, um, and, and I guess I can also just say that regardless of what the existing system was, we have yet to trial this new one. So we'll, we'll see where that goes. But, but what I can say is the problem he is addressing for sure is real. A lot of customers have that frustration, but apparently the new system is going to allow you to kind of reserve a couple sites in your little kind of checkout and then be able to sort of make that transaction happen live time. So you have that yeah. few minutes or you can, you can do that, let's say a week in advance and be ready the day of. But I wow. still think we're going to be doing that quick click um, to Steve's point. You know, we're going to still have to probably be up at midnight to catch those uh, those prime sites in places let's, like the Okanagan. It's not going to get easier anytime soon. Let's go to Ron in Burnaby. He's got a minute left here. Ron, go ahead. you got 30 seconds. Yeah, I'll make it quick. Uh, I don't have internet or smartphone, so uh, I guess I'm SOL, right? S Sam. Uh, they have a call center, and they say they're going to be staffing it better. So, uh, so you can be our guinea pig and give it a give it a whirl and let us know how that goes. But, um, but it should have a call center. You should be able to call and book that way. Yeah. Natalie and Poco. Natalie, thirty seconds. Got to go quick. 
Yeah, I, I just don't see how the provincially run campground should be 100% reservable. It's just not fair to families. I don't there think it is right. Thank you. I hate to cut you off. Or I hate to cut you off right at a time. I don't think it is 100% reservable. Is it, Sam? 30, 20 seconds here. Yeah, no. And, and to her point, it, it is in certain sites and it isn't in others. So some sites are 100% reservable. Okay. Some sites, there's a mix. Yeah, it just depends. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, Sam. Of course. Not uh, ever talk to you guys. Uh, uh, all right, welcome back. Let's talk about the big news in federal politics now. Aaron O'Toole is out as leader of the Conservatives, the Tory leader done in by a revolt inside the Conservative caucus in Ottawa. O'Toole's own Conservative MPs voting him out as leader. Why? Did the Conservatives give this guy a fair shake or... Was he the author of his own demise? I've got Franco Terrazano standing by to talk about that. But first, have a listen to this report now from Global News Chief Political Correspondent David Aiken. In the end, it was not close. Nearly two-thirds of the 119 MPs in Aaron O'Toole's caucus voted to show him the door. Caucus spoke pretty convincingly, and we're going to move on, and we're going to find a new, new leader. We needed a, a new captain to bring us all together, and I think it was time for a change, and uh, the majority of our grassroots movement felt that that was uh, needed. It wasn't quick. MPs debated for three hours in a virtual closed-door meeting while protesters honked outside their Parliament Hill offices. Insiders say O'Toole spoke twice. He offered to meet with caucus dissidents and move a leadership review that had been scheduled for August 2023 up, but it was to no avail. O'Toole delivered a parting statement on Facebook. Hear the other side. Listen to all voices, not just the echoes from your own tribe. Realize that our country is divided and people are worried. Okay, thank you. That report from Global News. Let's discuss now with my guest, Franco Terrazano, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Franco, thanks for coming on today. Hey, it's my pleasure as always. Okay, Franco, when we take a look at what happened to O'Toole yesterday, you think that what? Who's to blame for this? Who dealt this mess for O'Toole? You think he's gone only got himself to blame, right? That's absolutely right. Uh, who, who has? He should be looking in the mirror right now. Uh, one of the key frustrations that I've heard from so many Canadians, really coast to coast, is just that Aaron O'Toole lost all credibility. He flip-flopped, and, and it's not like he just flip-flopped on a few minor issues. He consistently flip-flopped on some of the key issues for taxpayers. Um, the, mo- the one that everyone talks about is the carbon tax. Remember, yeah. when he was running for Conservative Party leader, he signed our pledge. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation pledged to oppose a carbon tax. And then only a few months before the last election, he did a complete 180 and decided to run on a platform that would hammer Canadians with a carbon tax of his own. Okay, so let's talk about that taxpayer pledge, because I do recall him signing on for that. So what exactly did it say? Like, what precisely did, did Aaron O'Toole <laughs> promise on this? Let me, let me read it word for word so that okay. your uh, listeners can know just how clear-cut it is. Quote, I, Aaron O'Toole, promise that if elected Prime Minister of Canada, I will immediately repeal the Trudeau carbon tax and reject any future national carbon tax or cap-and-trade scheme doesn't get any more clear-cut than that. Okay, so he said he would, he promised to repeal the national carbon tax brought in by Trudeau and reject any future national carbon tax. So let's talk about what he promised instead, Franco. Like, he did say he would, he did say he would get rid of the federal carbon tax, right? 
Well, yes, but he would impose yeah. one of his own. Okay. And his own carbon tax, he wanted a carbon tax that would increase the cost of gasoline by 11 cents per litre, which, by the way, is actually more than the current federal carbon tax. But he wasn't stopping there. He also wanted to impose a second carbon tax. Yep, that's right, two carbon taxes. His second one, he wanted to bury within fuel regulations. But if you add both of those two carbon taxes up from Mr. O'Toole, that would cost drivers about an extra 27 cents per litre of gas. And I think here's where people's blood really started to boil, even after the flip-flop, even after this higher cost of gasoline. Mr. O'Toole then tried to play word games and insult Canadians' intelligence. He even went so far to say that his carbon tax was not a carbon tax at all. Okay, well, I'm taking a look at what he did roll out in the last election on this, and he did say that if he became prime minister, the Conservatives took power, a Conservative government would bring in a carbon levy, a price for carbon on consumers. Right, so it'd be like, well, I mean, I guess he didn't want to use the word tax. I mean, he called it a, a carbon savings account. So as I recall the way this would work, Okay, so you would pay this carbon tax when you gas up your vehicle or whatever, but the money would not go directly to the government. It would go into a savings account that then you could then use to spend on green initiatives, right? Like you could buy a bike with it or you could buy a transit pass. Isn't that that's what he promised, right? Yeah, it was it yeah. was so convoluted. What's wrong I with mean, what's wrong with that? <laughs> it's so convoluted. I mean, First of all, one of the key issues facing Canadian families, of course, is the cost of living, higher gas bills. Um, and O'Toole really handcuffed his own official opposition from holding the Trudeau government accountable on carbon taxes. I mean, it would have been pretty hard for a Conservative MP to hold a press conference attacking the carbon tax when their own leader wanted to soak Canadian families for 27 cents per liter at the pumps. But let's talk about that proposal that you just mentioned. I mean, yeah. that is... That is essentially worse than the Trudeau government's carbon tax. I mean, at least under the Trudeau government's carbon tax, some people are getting some of their actual cash back. Under O'Toole's carbon tax, it was some type of like O'Toole points, O'Toole's rewards card. Uh, you'd pay a higher price at the pump, and then you'd only be able uh, allowed to spend it on some type of government-approved green swag. So what are people in Calgary or Edmonton going to do? Are they going to be mm. carting their groceries home on some type of an electric scooter? You know, thanks, <laughs> but no thanks. Okay, speaking of Franco Terrazano, about uh, Aaron O'Toole, he has been sacked as the leader of the Federal Conservative Party. Okay, another one that I think bothered a lot of people who support the Conservatives was the federal liberal government's ban on assault weapons, or what Justin Trudeau defined as an assault weapon, which is a debate on its own. But the Trudeau government moved in to ban a whole bunch of weapons, and... The conservatives were were opposed to that, especially the gun buyback program. Like the Trudeau liberals were going to, okay, we're going to ban these guns, but we're going to buy them back from you. It was going to cost a lot of money. Where did you you think he flip flop on that one too? Correct. Oh, he absolutely did. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, uh, right in this platform on day one, if you look at the platform he originally put out, it actually said that it was going to repeal <laughs> that bill, that order in council from the Trudeau government. But then he got some heat in the media. He got some pushback from the liberals. And what did he do? Well, he took out his magic marker and he added a footnote 
to his own platform, yeah, yeah. you know, saying that he wasn't going to remove the ban. So he absolutely pulled a complete 180 on this very ineffective and expensive uh, gun policy from the Trudeau Liberals. How, mu- how much was that? How much is that going to cost the gun buyback program? The parliamentary budget officer, that's the government's own independent budget watchdog, say that this could cost uh, $756 million just yeah. to reimburse the gun owners. But hold on a sec, that's not the full cost of the program. There's a professor at SFU that estimates that it's actually leaving aside the biggest cost, which could be staffing administration actually running this Ooh. program. And that professor says that would add billions of dollars onto the price tag. Okay, I suggest to you, Franco, like the reason that O'Toole was tr- was doing this, and I agree with you, he was kind of weak, wishy-washy, flip-flopping on this stuff. I mean, he was here on the show. I tried to grill him on this on this firearms promise that he was made, and it was just as clear as mud. He was just ducking and dodging <laughs> and weaving on it. And similar yeah. on the carbon tax. But, you know, he was trying to move to the center and try to woo some of those soft liberal voters over to the conservative party. He's trying to obtain power. And his calculus on this was Canadians are worried about climate change. He could not go hardcore anti-carbon tax because he would never, he would never win if he did that. He had to, he had to kind of knuckle under on, on the, the, the assault weapon ban, the so-called assault weapon ban, because there are so many urban voters in Toronto and Vancouver that don't, don't like guns, Montreal. And Trudeau was just eating his lunch on this stuff. He had to kind of move politically in order to win. That's why he did it. Well, right? I am no political. I am no political analyst. I'm not a political pundit. But but hindsight 2020, clearly the strategy did not work. Right? Just clearly yeah. the strategy did not work. And and what O'Toole should have done is is he should have done what he did in the leadership campaign, where he's actually um, giving Canadians the benefit of having intelligence. I mean, I think so many Canadians are starved for this legitimate debate, for legitimate conversation. Why didn't he point to British Columbia's carbon tax that hasn't been working, right? We've seen, right. The, we've seen the cost of gasoline go up. It's really hurting uh, working families, but we still continue to see emissions going up. When, when O'Toole was running for leadership, he rightly said that a carbon tax is not an environmental plan. It is a tax plan. Now let's talk yeah. about the gun stuff. All he had to do was quote the RCMP union word for word. The RCMP union says that the gun ban and buyback will not make Canada safer because it targets yeah. law-abiding citizens, and it could actually make Canada less safe by diverting resources away from actually tackling crime. So all he had to do was, was make his argument and tell Canadians the truth. Franco, thanks for coming on with your thoughts today. Hey, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me.